So that's covenant marriage, holy sexuality within a marriage between one man and one woman. That's one aspect of how you could, that's one way you can exercise holy sexuality. Celibacy and singleness is another one, but no one likes that one. That one is, is the one that, that folks fear instead of run towards. Well, some people don't, but most of us do. And all too often, our conversation of holy sexuality stops at talking about marriage, and we never move into singleness. But we need to talk about singleness because God says there are in, for holy sexuality, it means in singleness you abstain from sex, and then in marriage you may not abstain from sex except by mutual agreement for a set amount of time before you mutually come back together. That's a hard reality if you're single. Um, But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. He references that as a gift. If you're single, I would bet nine out of 10 of you would say, no, it's not a gift. It does not feel like a gift. Part of what Paul is saying is it's not just a gift for you, it's a gift for us, married individuals in your church family. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments, the way that singleness brings so much to the table for humanity and for the church. Now, I gotta move on. That's a flyby. We've just hit a whole bunch of things about what God says about sexuality, and you may have more questions than you have answers at this point. So I wanna take one moment, and I wanna recommend a couple resources, and I wanna warn you about one as well. One of the best resources that I could put in your hands is a book by Sam Alberry, who is this pastor in the UK who struggles with same-sex attraction and is living a single celibate life. He wrote a book called, Is God Anti-Gay? Question mark. It's fantastic. It's not incredibly long, and it's surprisingly thorough for a short book. There's another book by Peter Hubbard called Love into Light, The Gospel, The Homosexual, and The Church. It's a longer book, but it's a great book. Then there's one by Rosaria Butterfield called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. That's a great look into the reality and the humanity of what we're talking about. I highly recommend it. And then last but not least, our denomination, the EPC, has created with a preliminary position paper, which does not sound super exciting, but it's a preliminary position paper on human sexuality. It's probably the best six pages I've ever read on the topic of human sexuality. We're going to, on Facebook and Twitter, we're going to put links to these things so that later on today or later on this week, you can go and avail yourselves of those resources. But when you go on to, to Amazon and you're looking for the book that Sam Alberry wrote, you're probably going to see right there with it this book by Matthew Vines called God and the Gay Christian. I read this cover to cover. Um, And I just want to be brutally honest with you. This is a dangerous book. Because what Matthew does here, he shares his personal story and it's a heartbreaking story. But the way that he exegetes God's word is not okay. It's not orthodox. It's not in keeping with the testimony of scripture. It's not in keeping with the historic interpretation of scripture. This is dangerous exegesis. I kind of wrote all over my copy, so you can't have my copy. Uh, But if you have read this book and you found it persuasive, I I would love to talk to you about it. If you want to read this book, I would encourage you to read with great discernment. Of course, I'd always encourage you to read with great discernment. But I want you to know that the way that, that he unpacks Scripture here is not faithful to the whole counsel of God. And so be aware, because you're going to see this right next to Sam Alberry's book when you go to order it on Amazon. All right, so that's that. We've spent a very long time talking about 
sexuality as God designed it for us. Now I want us to spend the last portion of our time talking about things that may make us more uncomfortable for some of us, how we failed and where do we go from here. So first, and we're going to move through these pretty quickly. I'd love to talk with you more about them. If you want to, if you want to chat about it, send me an email and, and we'll sit down and talk about it. But how have we failed? Like I told you, I want us to think about the way that we failed um, singles, our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, and the LGBT community uh, and our neighbors. Um, so to that end, what, the way that we fail, you could summarize it this way. We have forgotten the gospel in the context of sexual brokenness. We've forgotten about it. So for instance, how have we failed our singles? For far too long, especially in the South, what we say either verbally or non-verbally to single people is, don't worry, you're just in a state of pre-marriage. Singleness equals pre-marriage. That is not true. That is a lie and it is damaging. If every conversation you have with your daughter while she's at college is, are you seeing anyone now? Has he asked you to marry him yet? That is saying to her that you are incomplete until you have a man. And God does not say that. God says that singleness is a gift. We have to affirm that singleness is a gift and not create this label for single people where they assume that all married couples care about is getting them married. God gives us single men and women in our church family because married people are distracted. It says so in 1 Corinthians. We got a lot of things going on and a lot of them are taking us in directions that are not advancing God's mission. And so he gives us single people who will stand in the gap with and for us. So we need to change our category for what singleness means. On top of that, we need to, uh, to think in terms of how we failed our Christian, our, our brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And the way that we failed uh, our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of that struggle, I would say there's three ways that we've forgotten the gospel. Three ways that we, like, they, they're oftentimes single. And if you remember what we if we're saying that you have to be married to be, to be satisfied, we're, we're denying what Jesus said when he said, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry. You'll never thirst again. Oftentimes we take that and say, yeah, Jesus will satisfy you. And he always chooses, chooses to do it with a spouse. Not true. But in the same way we say, Jesus will satisfy you. Um, but in the midst of your same-sex attraction, he's going to need to do these, these things over here. All these different things get added to the gospel and it's damaging. One of the lies, three, here's three ways in particular that we have failed our fellow brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction. One is that we, we have this lie that says the presence of temptation in your life is equal to the presence of sin in your life. We tell men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction, we say your struggle is in and of itself sinful. And that is a lie. We are told in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted by the devil and he did not sin. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that that's good news for us because he's our high priest and he was tempted just like us but without sin so that he could be a perfect substitute for us because we all give in to temptation and we are all sinners. So in that sense, when you tell a brother or sister who struggles with same-sex attraction that the mere fact that they're tempted by lust towards a same-sex partner is in itself a sin, then every one of us has to acknowledge that we are saying that when I feel the temptation towards lust and I deny that lust, I'm still in sin. And that's a lie. 
Same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction are about where our minds go when lust gets a hold of them. So if you are a heterosexually attracted individual, lust is going to draw you towards a man or a woman of the, you know, of the opposite sex. If you're a same-sex attracted individual, lust is going to draw you towards a same-sex object, individual, if you will. But the temptation itself is not sinful. And so we need to acknowledge that you can live as, a, as an individual who fights and battles and struggles with same-sex attraction, and you are just like me, a heterosexually attracted individual who struggles with lust. It's the same. There is no, there is no difference outside of the nuance of what are you attracted to. Now, I've got to keep moving. Um, second thing, second way that we failed our fellow Christians who are struggling with same-sex attraction, not only do we tell them that the presence of your temptation is the presence of sin, we then turn around and tell, we put this unbiblical burden on them that makes the goal for them, like the way that you can overcome this is to stop be attract, being attracted to the same sex, start being attracted, attracted to the opposite sex. We say the goal is for you to stop being attracted to people of your sex and start being attracted to people of the opposite sex. That is a lie. Our goal is not to get people to reorient their attraction. And our goal is for every one of us to find our satisfaction in Jesus and to live in that relationship in a holy way. There are some men and women, Rosaria Butterfield is one example, who do experience by the power of the Spirit a radical reorientation. They find themselves in heterosexual relationships. That can happen, but it doesn't always. And the numbers are starting to play out that it doesn't often. And so we need to understand that we have brothers and sisters, some of you probably in this room, who need to know that you can battle with this and we don't expect it to go away. We expect you to know that we're not going to go away, that we'll be together with you in this, just like we need you with us in our struggles. And then just to illustrate this, I play this game with my boys called Would You Rather. I think most families do this. You know, mine's like, would you rather have cauliflower or broccoli put on your tooth in the form of a toothpaste? Or would you rather be able to fly or breathe underwater? I have a would you rather for you. Would you rather that your son struggle with same-sex attraction his entire life but love Jesus? Or would you rather your son love girls but not love Jesus? Which one matters? Is so obvious. Now, third, and we'll buzz through this one pretty quickly. Another way that we failed these brothers and sisters is we've replaced biblical masculinity and femininity with cultural stereotypes. And one of the ways that we struggle with that in our church is that we, if I were, if I were to summarize it, men like to hunt and fish and drive trucks. Women like to do whatever Pinterest says. <laughs> if you don't match that stereotype of masculinity or femininity, this isn't the place for you. And that's a lie. We need to understand that there is diversity in ways that we can express godly uh, masculinity and godly femininity. And we need all of those nuances in our church family because they round us out and they encourage and they form us so that we look more and more like Jesus. And then how have we failed our LGBT neighbors? I want to again highlight three ways. We'll go through them quickly. 
if we're honest with ourselves, all too often we make a decision. And it's a decision, we have to make a decision, but the decision that we make is so damaging. You and I look around at our culture and our world and we say, my nation or my home or my comfort or my preferences matter more than my neighbor. And we say, I will, I will cash in all my relational capital so that this looks like the USA of old. It doesn't matter to me that there's a lesbian couple living across the street with a couple of kids and that they follow me on Facebook. And when I post these things on Facebook, I tell them I don't, in, in words I don't intend to use, it still tells them I don't want you in my home, I don't want you in my country. We have to understand we have a limited amount of relational capital. We can be faithful, God-fearing citizens and part of public discourse without severing relationships. You and I need to think in terms before I post, before I tweet, before I comment. If my neighbor across the street read this, would they come to my cookout or would they not? Because we want our neighbors at our cookout more than we want all the people who agree with us to see that they still agree with us on Facebook. And so we have to be willing to say my neighbor matters most. And then second, the way that we've failed our LGBT neighbors, we've come to believe that we are somehow honor bound to confront sexual sin as the primary sin. We say you can't be with us or among us until you clean that up. Let me read for you uh, a quote from Sam Albury. He says this, he says, Christians who want to explain the Christian faith to gay friends need to know that what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain, and it's probably not the first thing or even the main thing they need to focus on. He goes on and says, sometimes there is this danger of Christians thinking that a gay couple needs to be confronted with their sexuality almost the moment they walk through the door that this needs to be talked about immediately and the couple told what the Bible teaches in the whole, teach it, what the Bible is teaching is on the whole issue. And he says, this is simply not the case. He says, I would rather start at the center and work outwards than start at the edge and try and work in. Saying that when we, start talk, when we address people and we start immediately co confronting symptoms of an unredeemed heart, we start addressing things before we can ever even get to the heart. He says, I'd rather go and let the gospel speak to their heart and let the gospel show them there are going to be changes that have to be made. The gospel shows us what has to be changed. We don't tell people what they have to change to receive the gospel. It's an important distinction. And we've gotten this essentially out of line in our thinking. Rosaria Butterfield shares her own story. And what she says, it was pretty amazing. She tells the story um, of the first time she went to dinner with her friend Ken and his wife Floyd, and she went to, so Ken, Ken's a reformed pastor, and she was a um, English professor at Syracuse living a lesbian lifestyle, and they somehow, you have to, the story's long, I can't tell you the whole story, but you should really look into it. And she says the first time he invited them, her to their house, he and his wife, she was hesitant, but she goes, and she says that, she says they, um, they, they forgot or they didn't practice two of the cardinal rules of the Christian handbook when a heathen comes over. I came over for dinner, she says, and they did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And in so doing, when they extended their hand to me, I knew it was safe to take it. You and I have to think in terms of relationship, not just declaration. And in this area specifically, 
we have this mentality that says declaration first, relationship only if they can deal with the declaration. That's Jesus' job through the gospel. Let's give it opportunity. And then lastly, we've neglected to consider the cost for our neighbors. Rosaria Butterfield, when she was reflecting on that, she said, conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything I had to gain Christ, but I did. You and I talk in theory about giving up everything to follow Jesus. Our LGBT neighbors very well will to follow Jesus. We need to be sympathetic and compassionate, and we need to understand that we don't understand what that's like. One of, uh, one of y'all was having a conversation with this, me this week and sharing how brokenhearted you feel over the fact that your neighbors across the street are a lesbian couple with kids that live at, at home with them and you have just processed through oh, how hard it would be if God in his loving mercy brings them to faith, what would happen to that family? And yet that's what that family needs. We need that kind of sensitivity. They feel brokenhearted on, over what will happen and still yet want to be an agent for that change. We are pretty much out of time, but I can't stop, so we're going to keep going. You kind of thought that was going to happen anyway. So where do we go from here? First, we repent. We repent of our homophobia. We repent of the way that we have this broken perspective on singleness that makes no place for singles, whether they are heterosexually attracted or same-sex attracted. We repent of our responses that have been driven out of fear and selfishness on Facebook, on Twitter, commenting on blogs, and in conversation. We repent of these things that have severed relationship that is where these relationships that were meant to be the incubator in which the gospel would flourish in the life of someone else, and we've severed that relationship. And so we repent of those things, and then we follow hard after Jesus. We follow him as we pursue singles in our church seeking to have them as a vibrant part of our community because we need them and they need us. And so we stop being the, uh, essentially the Christian meat market and we become a family that loves and cares for one another, a vibrant community. We pursue our brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction. We identify with them. We let them know that, yes, your struggle is with lust in this area, but I have a struggle with lust in that area. We both struggle with lust. We both need Jesus. And we identify with them and we walk with them. And then we acknowledge to them that we want to be that family with them as they face perhaps an entire future on this earth when they will never have the opportunity to be married. What a terrifying thought. If the church is not a place where someone who desperately desires to be married cannot still feel whole and family and connected, then we're not the church that God's created us to be. And then we also pursue our LGBT neighbors. Peter Hubbard said, our lives cannot adorn the gospel if they are not lived in the presence of the people who need to know the gospel. He says, Christian hospitality is not getting with people who are just like us. Christian hospitality fills in trenches and crosses enemy lines. It's for singles, married couples, families, young, old, rich, poor, all eating, laughing, and loving. Our LGBT neighbors and friends need to know that they are welcome in our homes and in our church. They are welcome here to come worship with us, 
to come to our small groups, to our community groups, to be active in the life of our church. This is what our, our EPC position paper says and says it so well. In the name of Jesus, our compassionate Savior, we tenderly welcome all, regardless of their beliefs or lifestyles, to attend our churches. We open the doors wide and we welcome them in. And then through the power of the Spirit, as we see this, it says, further we invite into the membership of our churches all those bruised and broken by the fall who are now seeking through sincere faith and genuine repentance to live in obedience to the Scripture and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Our churches, when we are gathered, our worship and our gatherings is for joyful friendship and our membership is for family. Meaning that to be a part of our worshiping gathering You do not have to believe what we believe. You do not have to adhere to what we adhere to. And you will always be welcome here. To become a member, you come under the authority of the local church. And with that comes accountability and shepherding. And it's important for you to know what that means coming in. Because it means that you are affirming our beliefs and coming under the authority of our local church to help you pursue holiness in those ways. So that means that if next week two fathers walk in with their four children, you slide over and they sit next to you and you worship beside them and you introduce yourself to them and you ask them to come to your home for lunch after worship and then you find out what sports their kids are involved in And you try to be connected in that way because they're now your friends. And they are welcome here. And one thing we need to understand is what we want to say is you are welcome here. If you are a gay couple, you are welcome here as long as we can't tell that you're gay. If you don't act gay when you're in our worship services, that's fine. But what we're saying here now is no. You can hold hands here. Is that outside of God's design? Yes. It absolutely is. And where would we want you to be other than here? Nowhere. Let's pray.